Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. I'm Kyle Cheka, and I'm a writer. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. What is good minimalism? Like, I think it's, it's, seeing, it's seeing your own sights and feeling your own perceptions. Hi, I'm Lucas Werner, and this week's episode is a little new for us. As we grow and evolve Dialogues during this time, We'll be releasing some episodes that don't always feature an interesting pairing, but focus instead on a single interesting and relevant topic or person. For this episode, I spoke to Kyle Cheka, an art critic and journalist who recently published The Longing for Less, a book that has been discussed a lot in the art world and outside of it. It attempts to diagnose why the minimalist aesthetic is so appealing right now, from Marie Kondo fanatics to the capital M minimalist artists so many people love. It feels like the timing of Kyle's book was no accident, and it was especially resonant for me, with the opening of the major Donald Judd retrospective at MoMA last month. While you can't visit that show right now, hopefully this episode explores some of the important questions it poses for culture at large. Do you have one that you um, carry around? Yeah, is there yeah, a six? Yeah. You've got so one marked um, up one? Oh, but it's not that annotated, actually. No, well, this one is clean. It's just like the, the two sections that I often read. Okay, got it. Um, what are the two sections that you often read? The first one is just from the introduction, and it's kind of like why why millennials are minimalist and kind of what are the, the larger forces that have made minimalism more popular mm. uh, and then the other was like the sensory deprivation tank anecdote because yeah. it's like funny and relatable without rehashing your introduction what brought you to the point where you thought this was the moment to write the minimalism book i think the real strength of this book is that it is bridging the gap between like what, what you and what we would might call mainstream minimalism <laughs> yeah. and the aesthetic and philosophical traditions that underpin what has become mainstream minimalism. Totally. So it was kind of in response to seeing that commercialized version of minimalism, the the form that's become really popular. And so I think somewhere around 2015, 2016, I started noticing how like minimalism was applied to so many different things that kind of had nothing to do with art or design or anything. So you could have a minimalist skincare routine or you could have a minimalist restaurant or you could have whatever, anything could be minimalist. And so my own backgrounds in art history, like my reference frame for minimalism was that original art movement and was the specific people in the sixties. And so I was just curious what, how that happened, like how this very niche concept and a kind of radical art movement became an incredibly popular mainstream mm. lifestyle word. And can you connect the two? Like, do they do they have some connection or is this just a kind of weird coincidence that that happens? And of course, one pivot point in that conversation is, is the sort of Marie Kondo figure who takes it from sort of somewhat mainstream with the books to kind of mainstream, mainstream mm-hmm. with the TV show and it, the, Netflix, sort of the show. Netflix show and it continues <laughs> now. Um, but do you think the seeds of it were really germinating, so to speak, in mainstream culture before that ignition point? Yeah. I mean, you can talk about the whole arc of minimalism from the 60s when it was established as a word and as an art movement through to like 
through fashion and design and architecture in the 70s, 80s, 90s. But then I think the the kind of formative moment for minimalism recently was right around the financial crisis and like 2008 through 2010. So in that moment, there was this big turn toward living simply and like reconsidering your consumerism and what you were could buy or or needed to buy and this like revising of lifestyle aspirations mm -hmm. into something maybe uh, less grand. So I think at that moment, there were a bunch of American lifestyle bloggers who started calling themselves minimalist and they they kind of coined it as a lifestyle word and as a label for managing your consumption, like buying less stuff, figuring out what you own. That is kind of where minimalism jumped from something that was purely aesthetic or like is a kind of artistic concept into something that could be applied to anything else. And and could, I mean, become a marketing word in some um, ways. Yeah, exactly. Like it a becomes a brand, brand at that exactly. moment. Yeah. And I think part of what you do explicitly in the book is, is talk about the fact that the original aspirations of some of these artists, whether it's Agnes Martin or, or Donald Judd, are very, very different from the movement as it has been applied in its mass, its its sort of mass, mass world, mass application. Right. So Mary Kondo, like Mary Kondo is not talking about the same things as Agnes Martin, but the weird thing is that this word minimalism gets applied to both of them. In your thinking about it, what is the key difference between what someone like Agnes Martin, in all her kind of radicality, what does she really mean or what would we mean when we talk about her and what is meant by the mainstream folks? I don't want to throw Mary Kondo under the bus too much, <laughs> but you know, let's just yeah, call it the mainstream yeah. minimalists, as it were, you know? Right. Like I think, I mean, the mainstream minimalists to me are always about consumption, buying less or more stuff. Like you're never changing your relationship to the objects or the world around you. You're just kind of more carefully picking what objects you're consuming or like obsessing even more on just a few objects that you own. Agnes Martin was someone who decided to live in completely her own way and kind of broke with every social expectation that was put on her and defined herself as an artist almost like in isolation and on her own and came up with this kind of deeply radical vision that was about universality and like this kind of overwhelming spirit of the world and humanity. And that's like not about objects. It's not about an aesthetic even. It's about trying to like reach this transcendental state. And I don't think like cleaning your apartment is about trying to reach transcendence, but you know, maybe, maybe for some people it could be. What are the steps that bring a sort of program like that mm -hmm. to a place where it is being marketed and, and kind of sold at large? It was, it was almost a series of steps away from that original idea. And like, they're all logical steps, but in the end you get very far from right. this like initial moment in the 50s, 60s. So when you start with like Agnes Martin Judd or like John Cage, like the minimalist composer, you talk about these ideas that are like deeply radical, a kind of re-envisioning of the world around you, a non-judgmental state of mind that's about like changing your aesthetic expectations and like seeing the world directly is, is how I always thought about it. And at that moment, I think the way that minimalism kind of started to go off from the art track was through art galleries, weirdly. Like, I think the the white cube aesthetic that emerged to contextualize minimalist objects was part of what confused, part of what people took minimalism as. Like, they confused the space that the object was in mm. with the object itself. And so that, that like, white-walled aesthetic, I think became more and more popular until today. We see it kind of in every 
in a luxury fashion boutique in a new condo and you know a hotel that's kind of become the the dominant like luxury signifier of our time meaning that in a funny way the, the ultimate luxury signifier of our time is the ability to sort of have a very expensive shell as it were as opposed <laughs> to as opposed to as, a, as opposed to lots of let's say well curated or, or you know objects to fill a space it's much more about the the container as such potentially. yeah like it's about the space itself which i yeah. think can be interesting like i think it, there's a point to having a nice space and a nice backdrop but if you're not filling it with anything like that's becomes really bizarre to me and kind of a misunderstanding of what that mm. that choice and that aesthetic meant originally in the critiques of minimalism the art movement that kind of came to came to the fore even during its lifetime in mm -hmm. particular one which you bring up early on in your book which is michael freed's critique of donald judd and the literalists or minimalists as they were variously referred to and the, the key term in that critique or the key two terms are you know this idea of absorption or presentness and theatricality or self-reflectivity mm -hmm. that that of course that self-reflectivity has become like determines all of people's interactions with lowercase minimalism, right? Mm -hmm. That in a way that kind of theater of the self encountering the art is the dominant mode of art perception and experience today. Right. Like it becomes narcissistic. I think it encourages you to like bounce the experience back on yourself and kind of obsess over your own perception, which like was a little bit of the point. Like you do want to think about how you're perceiving something, but you don't want to just think about yourself. Like right. you don't, want to just have it be the theatrical experience. You want to have, there's a kind of formal aesthetic experience that needed to happen. And that's what it was trying to prompt, I think. And I think that's, in a funny way, that's the danger with that particular critique of minimalism is that it sort of ignores, it's so interested in the experience of the object that it mm -hmm. ignores the formal innovations of the objects themselves. And so, I mean, I really do like the Wilhelm, what is Wilhelm? Yeah, is Richard Wilhelm. Richard, yeah. uh, Richard Wilhelm's Great. like Lock 64 right. essay that coined the term minimalism, minimal art, I really liked its description of how minimalist art is confusing because it removes the things that we expect from a work of art. It mm -hmm. removes the like individual expression, the energetic brushstrokes, the like the idea that you express emotion and instead reduces that down to like these bare essential facts of an object. And yet he says like the reason that it is good artwork and is successful is because those choices of material, of form, of like repetition are still valid artistic choices and should be appreciated as like intentional acts of art making. And, and it sort of isolates it. It isolates, I think, a different kind of decision making. It's not the decision of how to express yourself. It's actually a decision of, it, it, interestingly, it is a decision about the framing mechanisms or the kind of material decisions that precede any other expressive decisions, right? It's almost like right. zooming back a little bit from the art making process. So you're no longer analyzing what decisions were made on the canvas, but analyzing the decision to have a canvas in the first place. Right. As if you're like just designing the canvas or like just designing the encounter with the art object yes. without the content that you then expect to read from it. Like I like Judd's talking about how you read or don't read an object. And if you get a narrative from an object, and like, actually, I find minimalist art really refreshing and then it doesn't have a narrative and you don't need to like read the story into it or read the expression. I always thought that a serious art form emerges when a number of people commit a lot of time to thinking about it, mm. something. And it is clear <laughs> that whatever Judd was thinking about, he was thinking about with real intensity, whether it was yeah. the quality of the bolts that connect something the texture of the color that's being put on, on on the surface of an object, the surface itself, the material decisions. 
And of course, you can say those are less important than the decisions that go into the sort of intentionality that goes into making a painting or expressing yourself in a painting. But that's not clear to me, you mm -hmm. know? And this was the innovation of those artists is that you did not have, you could think about those decisions rather than thinking about the, you know, the abex brushstroke or the, the content of the painting. Right. So coming back to the kind of unfolding of the book, you, you kind of noticed that the movement was beginning to happen on some level, right? And, and, and then did you begin to arrange your life such that you could be collecting data as it were for a book like this? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, throughout my career, I've been a freelance journalist and like writing magazine features and things like that. So it's kind of like, I, I actually started out as an art critic and an art reporter. And so I would always be following the art world and engaging with it, but also over time, like just thinking about culture at large and always like keeping an eye out for what's going on and like what hits my art sensors or like aesthetic sensors. So through, through the rest of my writing, I was like paying attention to this stuff. And I began writing this essay for the Times Magazine about the word minimalism and how I was kind of confused as to why it was everywhere right now. Hmm. And I think luckily for me, minimalism kept being very relevant and kept being like a force in, in the world. And then as you mentioned with the, the 2018 January 1st Netflix drop of mm -hmm. the Marie Kondo reality TV show, I was, I was excited because it meant that a lot of people were still like obsessing over it. these ideas and Instagramming their drawers or whatever. I mean, what's interesting is that she is now of course selling, selling things. There's a, mm. there's a kind of that, that it, it, it clearly is around consumption and it clearly is a kind of, it almost feels like some, the, the power of the idea in its original form was sensed by kind of like capitalism. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, and then someone stepped in to instrumentalize it for capitalism. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the process really freaks me out. Cause like to that capitalism can just die so fully digest something that started out as a radical anti-consumerist, like anti kind of almost anti-Western culture thing could be just turned into the biggest marketing gimmick of the past few years is really kind of staggering. I, I think that is the, the overt kind of, not even the subtext, but the overtext of this book. And I think what's, what's so shocking about the story that you tell, especially by ending with the kind of, frankly, the Eastern philosophical tradition mm -hmm. with its focus on Zen and that great ter term at the end, oh, it's like aware. Um, oh, mono no aware is the, mono no aware, exactly. the beauty of things, of things passing. Or, yeah. The kind of ephemerality of things passing. But the idea that any that capitalism's power to identify ideas that will have traction mm -hmm. um, and then monetize them in some way, right? It's, 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 it's truly a, incredible. And like I think also the rise of social media intensified this quite a bit because minimalism is really well adapted to the internet and it's a thing that you can signal with what's around you, like using an iPhone. Yeah, um, absolutely. I guess my, the, the immediate question that comes to mind is, is why, why not sort of like maximalism, right? I mean, why, <laughs> in a funny way, it does feel like it's tied to the fact that people want a paring down of ideas right now or, or yeah. a simplification because of the glut of a uh, surplus of information. Right. I think there's partly it's the overwhelming volume of sensory information that we are forced to process now with the internet, with like hyper-globalization with technology. We just like encounter and digest more culture and images and information than we ever have before. But then I also think it is about this, like the kind of cyclical nature of minimalism and the idea of simplification becomes really appealing when society or like civilization feels confusing mm -hmm. and out of control.
Like minimalism encourages you to just focus on what's there in front of you. That's interesting. So when you say cyclical nature of it, what what are you referring? I mean, do you mean like its first iteration, would you say in the 60s being a response mm. to global confusion or? I, I talk in the book about like capital M minimalism versus lowercase and the way that we've talked about mainstream minimalism, minimalism. or consumer minimalism versus the formal art movement. Yeah. So I think to me, like the lowercase M minimalism, the idea of living simply and kind of like throwing things out is cyclical and it reoccurs mm. in different historical moments. So in the sixties, we could connect it to like the aftermath of, of the hippie sixties mm -hmm. and the kind of failed social revolution at that point and the Vietnam war and mm -hmm. just this, the sense that, well, we tried to change things. We can't change things. Let's kind of erase the slate and start over. I think there is an inkling of that, and it certainly exists in the financial crisis aftermath mm -hmm. and that desire for minimalism. But I think you can even, and I, through the book, I talk about this moment in the 1930s when this philosopher called for voluntary simplicity. Mm -hmm. And he was worried about Ford motor cars and like typewriters or something, whereas now we're worried about iPhones and mm -hmm. the internet. And then another philosopher picked up that in the 70s and kind of revived it for another generation. Mm. I don't think it's quite snake oil, but you can see how this desire to like start over repeats, yeah. but you can never totally start over. Yeah. I mean, I guess what's interesting is that I would imagine that those philosophical movements had far less reach than something like the the capitalist infused minimalism of someone like me. I'm just talking about the right. number of people affected simply because that snake oil is not intended to sell an object in the end or sell right. a worldview. I mean, it's so much about objects now. I think in the past it was a little less about the specific objects, yeah. to, to use a Judd term. Yeah. But now the fact that you literally can buy a minimalist lamp, a minimalist coffee table, a minimalist book, it's like it, it shows just how object obsessed that this idea is. So when you look at Judd has a retrospective now up at MoMA, when you look at that, what mm. are you... What do you see in those objects now? Like, what do they? How do they speak to you now through the lens of this minimalist practice that you've traced? To me, the the like beauty of minimalism when it's seen, like the beauty of encountering minimalism is like encountering a bunch of choices that someone made in the past and like this kind of holistic way of living. And so, to me, it's really interesting to see. It was like my favorite experiences of minimalism were going to Judd's like homes and studio spaces and the places that he made and seeing how the work was installed there and how the work kind of coexisted with daily life in such a beautiful way. Like, I think that's what appeals to me so much about minimalism and just about art generally is this like integration mm. with the rest of the world. It's kind of inseparable. Mm. And so actually seeing the objects in a gallery space is like not totally ideal to me. Mm. I, I like seeing them in a home or in you know, a permanent installation or something. So it's funny, like you can kind of see how people were confused by them. I mean, it's great to see them all collected together at MoMA and it's great to see people like encountering them like that. Mm. But I kind of, I almost hope it's more of a starting point yeah. than an end point, like to look farther into minimalism and like think about the ideas more and like, bring it out into the world instead of keeping it in the gallery. Mm -hmm. Like maybe that was one of the problems or what, drove minimalism on this path was like the fact that it was so contained in gallery spaces and so like fetishized almost. And I, I don't necessarily like the fetishization of it. Right. It, when you talk about it now, it sort of makes me think that one of the core, you could call one of the core principles of the minimalist 
aesthetic as it's practiced by artists as a kind of deliberateness, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like totally. deliberate way of being, deliberate way of designing objects, a deliberate way of living. And does that sound like a fair, yeah. Yeah, totally. The- I think contextual, intentional, deliberate. I mean, deliberate is very nice because it's like forceful. <laughs> it's like yeah. we've made a decision to do it this way for a reason. And, and I feel that if those objects signal anything, Judd's objects, they do signal deliberateness, right? And, I, and I, in a funny way, I think if whenever you encounter a great art object, it typically signals some kind of deliberateness. Mm-hmm. But there happens to be something about this movement and its application to life through, I think, Judd as somebody who designed furniture that he could live with, yeah. and that made it feel like that deliberateness could be carried into everyday existence in a kind of both first maybe a more difficult way and then an increasingly simplified way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. it's both the power and maybe the flaw of, of how that has been in, like accepted after, like as he was working and after his death like it's pretty amazing and unique to me that judd did turn this like artistic innovation and and studio practice into something that truly represented like a holistic way of living like he created this the space in which you could do anything in life you can build a house you can have a table you can right. you can envision what clothes he wanted to wear and like how he wanted to be and that's i i find that really inspiring yeah you can also you can live and think in a minimalist way, according mm-hmm. to, right? And that's really in that kind of deliberative, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to pare out the kind of excesses. I mean, it's it's also about an exercise of taste and, and judgment, I think, in terms of like being conscious of what's around you mm-hmm. and understanding and incorporating the things that you've chosen into a, a holistic philosophy or a holistic way of living. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's like a much more challenging prospect than cleaning your apartment. It's like kind of, Mary Kondoing your entire existence and your entire way of thinking. Like, you know, not, I suppose not everyone needs to have this like integrated philosophy to their life, but it's like a way that we can become more aware of what we're doing, not just in aesthetics or interior decorating or whatever, but like in the way that we live. Would you also talk a little bit about that, the, the, the sort of Eastern philosophical underpinnings? In my mind, there are two prongs leading into lower m lowercase m yeah. or mary condo minimalism one is the one we've been discussing more of which is judd and the 60s and the other is like a millennium ago the the ideas kind of filter down from them i think like i think yeah the roots two roots of minimalism as we see it today are the artistic innovations and then this the specifically japanese form of buddhism that yeah. kind of went into that country from the year 600 to a thousand or something and that's that was kind of how it its arc of taking over Japan and that like flavor of Buddhism and Japan's intentional isolation from China and Korea around like the year 800 or something, it, it led the way toward this cultivation of a really unique cultural viewpoint and a, a kind of aestheticized way of living that thrived in the Heian court, which was just the name for the period at the time. And these people, like you can read about them in the tale of Genji or the pillow book, they live these like hyper aestheticized, very lazy lives, and the, but they really they pursued this idea of beauty that was not super dependent on material accumulation, and was dependent on this poetic experience of life as it happens around you. And you can think of that value of mono no ware, the like beauty of ephemerality or the beauty of things as they exist in the world, like knowing that the flowers will bloom and die, or like knowing that the snow will melt. 
and understanding that like we too will pass and we should appreciate what what we see what we're here in a funny way i think the idea that both of these prong, prongs of influence uh, one from the 60s and one from the year 600 to 1000 carry with them a lot of shared characteristics and and chief among them would be this kind of deliberateness around a way of being in the world which mm. i think has always been cultivated among artists on the one yes, hand and yeah, a kind yeah. of and a, often a kind of aristocratic <laughs> upper caste right which is 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 has fewer things to worry about i mean you need a lot of time to worry about the ordering of words in a sentence <laughs> that you're sending to a lover yes exactly um, you know like you need the you kind need... of tree branch that you affix to the poem and like have your messenger carry over to their house and the signal the symbolic value of that you know i mean yeah. people experience that today a little bit in the fretting over text messages that they might send but i think not to the same degree right like right i mean i think it provides an interesting example, I think, for the way we live today because it's they were so intentional about these things and we kind of are interested in the same stuff, but to an overwhelming scale. Like we don't send one poem a day. We send like a million text messages and consume so much other stuff. So I think they're, it's almost like a pared down laziness or something. I think minimalism, commercialized minimalism now offers the path of least resistance. Like it's this smooth, frictionless, easy space but really it shouldn't be it was it was meant to be a challenge yeah. and a, a challenge to like live differently and i mean what was so good about judd's early sculptures was this process of like defamiliarization where the thing did not meet your expectations of what is beautiful or what is an art object and so to to now turn minimalism into something that is mostly familiar yeah. and mostly recognizable uh is also like ironically against the original point where do you see that movement going and I think the the arc of Mary Kondo is really demonstrative here, where she she kind of hit peak saturation. It was everywhere. Everyone knows who she is. Like that's kind of amazing. And then tried to monetize her ideas even more by selling crystals and you know little home goods. I think I also talked to one woman who identified as a minimalist for a long time and used it as a tool to like get out of debt and figure her mm -hmm. life out. And now she rejects the minimalist label. Because like it's too popular and it's too meaningless, and so she's so minimalist essentially that she can't even call herself a minimalist anymore. And so I think there's there will be this process of like now everyone recognizes this. Now it's a kind of mainstream idea, so we don't need the label quite as much. And you'll just see a lot of people still trying to monetize it in the path of of Marie Kondo and offering these like home cleaning services or still trying to sell that like one minimalist object <laughs> until like all trends it will pass as a as a design fad and as an aesthetic and we'll move on into into something else but i do th i think there's a kind of permanence to minimalism mm. or it seems to be permanent because of digital culture now and this like overwhelming load of imagery that we see on our phones all the time so why are we ever going to want like a super elaborate interior space if we're just staring at our phones? I'm right. I'm not sure. You know, in your own grappling with the question of meaning making in a life, um, have there been any conclusions for you? Well, I think the, this living intentionally and like living according to your own tastes and desires and and sensibilities, I think, is is my biggest takeaway from the book and from the process of writing the book. And. I think another thing that like I came out of it with and experienced while writing is just how unaware we usually are of our surroundings and how like frictionlessly we do move through the world. Mm. Like I think looking so much at this art and these artists and writers and composers, it made me like rethink 
my own judgments of what I see in here. Mm -hmm. And so rather than just like letting things flood in and not thinking about them, I would kind of rethink, rethink what I heard. I mean, it's, <laughs> minimalism is very hard to describe. So it's like, what, what is good minimalism? What is good minimalism? Like, I think it's, it's seeing, it's seeing your own sights and feeling your own perceptions. And like, I can't tell you what that looks like, but you know, you listen to enough John Cage for a while and you can hear the sound of a truck or the grind of subway wheels as like an interesting auditory experience. And I think that's really powerful. I and mean, I think there's, there's, overlaps with this idea of mindfulness that many people have pointed out and mindfulness in terms of like being mindful of what is there rather than using mindfulness as a tool to like isolate yourself and kind of barricade yourself further. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.